Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is not only sponsored by our exclusive sponsor, Wine Access, it was made possible by Wine Access because they introduced me to the wines of San Filippo, led me to meet Tomas, and gave me an opportunity to have some of the best Brunello di Montalcino I have had. If you have not checked out Wine Access, do it and join my wine club for next year. The shipment is coming and each one is unique, special, and fantastic. Wineaccess.com slash normal. Now let's get to the show. Tomas Bianciardi is the winemaker for the exceptional Hacienda Agricola San Filippo in Montalcino, the famed enclave of Tuscany. And I had the honor of meeting him while on the patron trip to Tuscany this spring. And I loved the philosophy, especially the wines, and the way Tomas explained the region. Tomas joins us today to discuss Montalcino, educate us about the region, Tell us about how owner Roberto Gianelli and he make these exceptional wines that have made number three on Wine Spectator's list of top wines, have gotten unbelievable scores, but more than anything else, are real reflections of the land, of the terroir, and are really driven by the taste level of these people who care so much about the wines and about Montalcino. I am so excited to have you here, Tomas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's a real pleasure. I'm very happy to participate to this podcast. And I would like to explain a little bit more about our beautiful land of Montalcino, about our fantastic wines. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's say a big focus also on uh, San Filippo Winery. Uh, we will hope that people after all this podcast will love to maybe one day come to visit us and, uh, and taste the wines with us. First of all, let's just say that the property is freaking gorgeous, but we'll talk about <laughs> that in a second. And yeah, you yeah. Are, you're such a great host. So let's start out with San Filippo. And then I want to get to you because you have such a great background, but let's just give the lay of the land. So tell us about the history of San Filippo because it started in 1672, right? And so yeah, were grapes yes. always grown there or was it like everywhere else where there was mixed agriculture, some grapes, some everything else? It was mixed agriculture and grapes were there. For sure, you remember we are in Italy <laughs> and grapes were here science uh, forever. But we have to understand a little bit the history of Tuscany at that time. Uh, the agricultural system was what we call here the mezzadria. And basically the, the big land owner just gave little pieces of land to farmer family. And in exchange of the land, the, the owner took a little bit of the harvest, maybe a little bit more than a little bit. Yeah. And so... Half, uh, right? Metza, uh, metza's yeah, half, right? Exactly, yes. exactly. But it was probably more than half. Yeah, sometimes, yes. Basically, the, the farmer needed to harvest everything that they needed, have animals, have many, many other culture. It's why the viticulture was seen just to make a little bit of wine for themselves and also... Wine in Tuscany was see like uh, something you had to drink to get calories for eating, and it was cleaner sometimes than the water. So it was a really light wine. And so we, we, we never saw a specialized farm on the production of wine. Maybe, yes, in the Chianti region, you have near the railway, you remember that first of all, you have to make wine, but more important is to sell it and export it. So 
compared to many other wine region in the world, like Bordeaux or, for example, some wine region in Portugal, where uh, the market was already established uh, since hundreds of years, supporting it to England, for example, the Tuscan wines were a little bit less known and, uh, and there was not a, a real economy on this. San Filippo was a little farm. Here, the, the older people in Montalcino call this property Il Casino. It's really the, the little house and probably was a, a little a little hunting house maybe of a bigger property. And it's a house with a little church and the church is dedicated to San Filippo di Neri. And it's why then in 1972, when the, the one who was founded, took the name of the, the saint of the church, San Filippo. Let's just talk about the history of Brunello di Montalcino, because mm-hmm. if people do not know about the Biondi Santi family who really yeah. started Brunello, can you just give a real quick overview of that? Yeah, a lot of people come here and are usually surprised by the short history of Brunello di Montalcino mm-hmm. compared to to many other wine regions. We can say the inventor of the Brunello di Montalcino, as we know now, so a big red wine aged for long years, was Clemente Biondi Santi. He was a pharmacist, so he started to know a little bit of chemistry. And he saw the potential of the Sangiovese, of the 100% Sangiovese wines, the potential of aging. And he called it Brunello because at that time, Brunello was also the name to, to the Sangiovese here in this area. And we find some traces of it. He participates to some wine events in, in Europe. But then really nothing happened. Of course, a few other producers started to make some Brunello di Montalcino. During the wars, nothing happened. I always say that in the past, Montalcino was a very, very poor village. People used to go outside of the, of the village, maybe in the valley, working in, the, in other industries, because here it was really, really poor. But then the, the big change was in the 80s, two little American brothers, the Mariani brothers, founded the Banffi wineries. And they started to produce quantity. And also they started the, the market, they shipped all, uh, the wine all over to the United States and they created the market there. I always say that back in the days without the internet, social media, any other communication, you could produce the best wine in the world. But if you, <laughs> nobody knows it, you, you can be known so what they did is that they created the market and since the 80s, we really have uh, an explosion of uh, new winery, the more production. And of course, it arrived now to, to the Brunello di Montalcino that we know now. And uh, San Filippo started in 1972. So we think that there were probably 50, 60 wineries back then. And now we are talking about 220 something. So we can say San Filippo was some of the first, not the very first, but uh, the first before wave. The, yeah, yeah, first wave, let's say. So, like but this. just to be clear, so Biondi Santi started in the 1880s, right? So that was early on. And then they only made a couple of vintages. It wasn't very consistent release, right? No, it was uh, it was a lot of experiments, and Clemente used to try to age the Sangiovese for a long time, and also try to give it to some uh, wine fairs, and uh, it was already having a little success because it was uh, it was a nice wine, but it was all just uh, the beginning and very tiny quantities. I think your point yes, is really well exactly. well received is that it's so small. I think what's very interesting is that two of the most famous wines of Italy today started in the 1880s. Barolo, same situation. Super poor 
Barbaresco, Barolo, the Mezzadria system was terrible. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, you're saying it was a really poor village. Chianti had Mezzadria also, but they had yeah. already sort of been involved in wine for centuries. Yeah, the- but it's, Mezzadria was horrible for people, wasn't it? Really, yeah. really bad. I mean, yeah, it, was, yes. it was just a terrible, terrible system for the farmers, the small farmers, yeah. because the landowners... But- we're not very nice about it. No, not that's true. Tell us about who owned San Filippo and started it when it was revived. There's these gorgeous buildings, and now there's a revival. So someone came in and said, okay, we're going to buy this property, and now we're going to do wine. What happened? Yeah. What was that? This is Sir uh, Rosie, Hermano Rosie, that bought the wine in the early 70s. And and uh, yeah, the, there was just this uh, little farm with the, with the church. What he did is to start a proper winery. So first economy was the wine production, and he built some new buildings. That now we have our tasting room, and uh, we also rent apartments on our agriturismo, and also the new cellar. Uh, so it was it started to really put the basis of proper winery. Let's say. What about the vines, though? Did he plant new vines? Or this is the owner previous to Roberto, right? Yes, exactly. So they exactly. owned it for like I, 30 years or 40 years before they sold yes. it. Yes. So I don't know if he found already some, some vineyards existing. I know that here the only old vineyards we have is from 1972, so we don't have previous uh, vines, but I think he planted it, most of it, in the in the 70s. So then Roberto came in 2003. This is a crazy story. He's a dynamo. I mean, he's got a ton of personality. He <laughs> is very driven. He came from Florence. He was like a city guy. And tell yeah. us what happened. Why did he decide to... It's a yeah, little it's nuts. A... I mean, it's a little crazy. It worked out yeah. for him, but it could have just as easily not worked out. Yeah, well, he says all the time that he didn't sleep for for many years after buying the, the water. It's a nice story to tell. So Roberto, yeah, he's from Florence. Before the buying a winery, he was on uh, the real estate business in Florence. And he came here in San Filippo just after the previous owner died. So he wanted to help the succession to sell the property. And he told me that, yeah, in his mind, he always had passion for the wine. And in his mind, he always had maybe the, the little dream, one day I will have my own winery. And uh, coming here, fell a lot for, for the place because it's, uh, I mean, yeah, Baldorcha is, uh, is gorgeous. And also, yeah, he, he saw the potential of the winery with the first harvest. And then he decided to, after one year to, to buy the, uh, the entire property and really change uh, life, topping all the other business and uh, dedicated all this time to the winery. I think he did a fantastic job and uh, his key for the success, I think, is to always uh, want to do better. Always invest on new equipment, uh, modernizing the, the vineyard, uh, the cellar process, trying to always do better. It's not farming philosophy, usually it's more uh, entrepreneur uh, philosophy. And yeah, I think uh, now San Filippo is famous and uh, make amazing wines. Is thanks especially for, for this uh, philosophy. Who was the winemaker before you? Were there several or were there... Yeah, we had we had a few previous me, all young people. Roberto always uh, gave a chance to the young winemaker and now they're working for uh, in other wineries and uh, they it's a let's say San Filippo it's a very good school. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about you cuz 
Your background is amazing. You were born in Rheims, in Champagne, and yep. you grew up in Siena. I mean, obviously, what else were you going to do besides wine, really? There wasn't any <laughs> choice. So your parents are French or they're Italian? You've got a French first name and an Italian last name, so mm -hmm. something's going on. Tell us about your background. Yeah, my mother, she's French from France, the Champagne region, and my, my father's from Siena. So yeah, I grew up with those both culture where the wine is very present. And yes, the, the first times I, I started to touch the viticulture uh, was in France because uh, during the summer holiday, I used to go to my grandparents' house in France. And when once I started to be 16, you know, they had the legal age to work. They told me, yeah, don't stay all the time at home, go a little bit, make some money. So I started to work in the vineyard during summer and I enjoyed it a lot. And then uh, knowing the owner where I worked, I decided also to do a first harvest the year this after. This is in Champagne. And, uh, yes, in Champagne. Okay, okay. And uh, in Champagne, with the first harvest, at the end of it, I realized that, yeah, viticulture and winemaking is uh, very hard work, but the satisfaction of harvesting the entire work of one year in just a week, so huge that uh, yeah, I decided that it was uh, my passion. And then after the high school, I decided to do the winemaking uh, university in Florence because I wanted to yeah, to work for my patient and uh, because I really enjoyed this, this feeling after the harvest. You know, it's full stop. You start again after restart the, the next season, and every year is different because we are dealing with the weather. That is the, how we say, the big X factor that change uh, the cards every year. And uh, it's why our job is, uh, is never boring. No. Would you ever want to make a sparkling wine? Uh, I don't know. At the moment, I, I'm happy with the reds. I feel like with, with red wines, you are more close to the vineyard. Champagne is still a wine that you made most of it in the cellar. So... Yeah, at the moment, I, um, I'm pretty happy in Tuscany. <laughs> yeah. You also have had extensive work experience. So part of the reason your English is so impeccable is because you worked in New Zealand and Australia. And then you've also done some time in Pomerol, in Saint-Emilion, in Bordeaux. Can you talk about how those things influenced you? Because I always find it very interesting when you see it a little bit less with Italian winemakers, but French winemakers often go to New Zealand or Australia mm -hmm. and are shocked with the way mm -hmm. that New Zealand and Australia approach wine. Some people go to Napa, they also are shocked because yes. it is so different from how old world wines are made. And I don't know if you're up on any of this debate, but there's a lot of people now that are saying, oh, well, the old world and new world are close together everybody's making wine the same way. And yeah. I still just don't think that's true. I think there is no. a very, very big divide. Yes, the technology may be the same things that you find in both wineries, but the uh -huh. techniques and the things that you do where you are versus what people do in Australia and New Zealand and Napa and South Africa are just not the same, correct? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. After my graduation, and I suggest all the young winemakers to do that, is to go outside of your country and uh, discover the world and uh, discover also new philosophy. And as a winemaker also, to be able to do uh, two harvests in a year, you know, changing the, the, yeah. the atmosphere. It's uh, a lot of work. 
it's yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's uh, it's the good way to, to build a good CV and then uh, to make experience because, of course, at school you study a lot of uh, good base of chemistry and biology, microbiology. But then to be a good winemaker, a good viticulturist, you need to have a good uh, experience, uh, and the only way is to by working. So yeah, I did sure experience in Australia, New Zealand, and then also in, uh, in France, in Bordeaux. And yeah, I think there is uh, quite a difference between the new world and old world in, in terms of mind open. So in the new world wine, you are more free. When you work, for example, in Montalcino or in Pomerol, a place where there are a lot of rules established and uh, you have to do a constant quality. You work also in a small winery where you can do many experiments. Of course, it's in a certain way is fascinating because you, you're making excellent wine. But in the new world also, uh, it's nice to be able to make crazy experiments. We year, try to change things and, uh, and you don't have rules to follow. So... You can do what you want, and especially in big wineries. Also, you you can experiment. So, as a technician, more chemistry, you can do a lot of things. And so, working a new world wine for a winemaker, I think, is very good. Even if I I can't use all the techniques <laughs> I learned in the in the south hemisphere, but you know that there are many many possibilities, and they open your mind, and then you are more. Uh, you know, flexible and when you think about your decision and uh, and so it makes you a, a better winemaker, that's for sure. It's almost like in the old world, it's almost like if you're playing a video game and the rules were set and you just have to keep getting to the next level and doing better and better and better, but the rules never change. Whereas you know, in the new world, it's almost like you're creating your own video game. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, exactly. It's, the rules are not set, but... It depends on your personality, whether or not you like that, right? I mean, some people like to say, okay, these are the parameters I have. How can I do better within whatever we have? That can be really exciting also. There are some winemakers, especially I've met them in the U.S., who come from France or come from Italy and say, I didn't like that. But I think there are a lot of people who really like it. And it's a challenge also. It's not like it's not challenging, right? Yes, no, no, it's completely true. And remember also that our bigger challenge every year is the weather changing. So it's not completely boring to make wine with with great rules. And also when you work for a reality like Montalcino, it's very challenging because we don't have very long history, like we said before. And I think that really in Montalcino, the, the quality potential unexplored is gigantic. We can really do better and better. And so it's it's very exciting to be in Montalcino compared, for example, where I worked in in France, in Bordeaux, in those very famous chateaux. They, they, yes, they know every square of their vineyards and they have the crazy equipments in the cellar. And of course, they have to maintain a super high standard, but it's a little bit, everything is being studied and, and made. In, in Italy, and especially in Montalcino, we still have to write a lot of page of the history of the winemaking, I think. But I would say even in Chianti, where yes. they have a much longer history, they are having a lot of really great debates about 
how to study the soil and what to do. I mean, they have the traditions, but I think Italy has a little more flexibility as opposed to, well, I mean, you worked for Chateau Palmer for a summer, so I'm mm. sure that was just like, yeah. do this, do that, then do this. And that's yeah, it. Yes. it must have been kind of like, okay, whatever you say. So when did you join San Filippo? And why did you decide on Montalcino? If you wanted to, there are, I would say there's probably six or seven amazing regions all mm-hmm. over Italy. There's 20 regions where every single region makes at least one spectacular wine. There's not any region that doesn't make at least one spectacular wine in Italy. So if you want to stay in Italy because you wanted like some of the flexibility, plus you grew up in Siena, you're half Italian. Yes. So mm-hmm. why was it Montalcino? So at that time, I was on my traveling period. So for me, my, my home was the with the ward. <laughs> uh, I like to say that. And uh, so I, I didn't have a plan to go in Montalcino, to go in Bordeaux. I was just living the moment. And um, it was I do the harvest and I tried to figure out what I, what I want to go there. And it was the yeah, beginning of the 19th, just before going to Australia. And I heard about good position in Montalcino. So Roberto was searching a, a new winemaker. And so I, I came here in Montalcino to do the interview with Roberto. And yeah, luckily for me... He liked my CV and uh, we, we had a, a little talk and, and he said, I want you to, to be the winemaker. But I was already planned for Australia, so I, I was super happy that he waited for, for a few months. So I, I went to Australia and then I came back in May and I started to work for San Filippo. So that says that was a great opportunity that I catched. You know, I always said when uh, you the train is passing, it's better to catch because, of course, Traveling was a lot of fun, but the position of winemaker was something huge. I was 26 at the time. Wow. And especially in Italy, it's very, very uncommon to find uh, owners or directors that give the opportunity to young people. So I said, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to sleep a lot in the first night. But uh, if it works, it's going to be a good challenge and a good experience. So then I started in May 19. And once again, I've been super lucky because six months later, the pandemic started. And so it, the, the plan B was continuing to travel. So the, the, the plan B will be <laughs> bad. So yes. I, I've been very, very lucky. Good decisions. I, some yeah. of it's luck, some of it's good decisions. Now, yes. let's talk about Montalcino and your work. Montalcino is incredibly complex. And I don't know that it's always very clear about the different parts of Montalcino. Mm-hmm. There's the north and the east and the west. Can you talk about these different areas and the different climate conditions of the area and what that brings to the wine? Because I think that makes a huge difference. But a lot of times when we say Montalcino, we think of it as just one thing. For the people who never came to Montalcino, imagine Montalcino as a big hill close to Valdorcia. And so the, the we always uh, talk about the north face, the south face, the west face, and the, the and the east face. But this is just on a climate perspective, uh, because of course you can imagine if you are in the south or west side, you will have higher temperatures. Also on the west side, the sea is not too far, so you have a little influence of this. And at the opposite, in the in the north or east side, usually you have a lower temperature, less daylight, so. Of course, the Sangiovese will have different uh, style 
compared to the, to the 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 different areas, and especially Sangiovese, because I always say that that Sangiovese, that the main characteristic of the Sangiovese is that really change a lot compared where you planted and where you grew it. And in Montalcino, yes, we have different expression. We usually say that the south and southwest, you find a little bit more big body Sangiovese with more intensity, a little bit more dark fruits. And in the north, you have a little bit more elegance, more tension on the, the mouth, uh, and maybe less body compared to the south. But then, you know, in, uh, in the wine, it's not just about climate. Uh, let's say that 60-70% of the style of a wine is made by the soil. To talk about the soil of Montalcino is a little bit more complicated. Unfortunately, we would like to have a better explanation maybe one day in Montalcino, the consortium, you know, the organism that set the rules of the production will do some deep, deeper studies about the soils, maybe one do like similar to what they did in Barolo uh, to have uh, all the explanation of the microzone. Because Montalcino, you have to imagine like a big mosaic, different type of soil that can change very fast. For example, here in San Filippo, we have four different vineyards uh, very close to the to the winery and all the four are different soils and we have different style of Sangiovese from those. So it's not easy. We know that most of Montalcino is clay soils and clay is very important for reds because what give you intensity is the, the, the structure of the tannins. But then what changes uh, what is inside with the clay so you can add some Pietraforte formation Pietraforte is the stone of Montalcino, is a sandstone. Then uh, in some other parts, you have Galestro, like the Chianti. In the, some places can be a sea deposit, so you a little bit of more amount of sand. That was a little hard to understand, but it is important, so I'm just interjecting here. Tomas said sea deposits. That is the difference in the soil types, sea deposits. He says it again in a little while, so just remember that, and that's all I want to say. It's really a virus and uh, it's not easy to explain. For sure, a lot of wineries did the, the studies for their own vineyards, like we did in, in San Filippo, but it will be good for sure to put all those studies together and maybe one day have a full map of the territory to be able to explain to the people who drink the wines why uh, San Giovia Brunello di Montalcino from this place is completely different from another place. And it's the beauty of the Brunello di Montalcino, I think. I think it's super important for people to know that because I think when people think of Montalcino, they think, well, it's small and it's one thing, but I think it's coming. I mean, Chianti just approved their UGO system. So I think that it's, it's not too far away. If you are enjoying this show, then you absolutely need to go to wineaccess.com slash normal and sign up for the wine club so that you can get access to things like the Lo Scorno, which is the wine that introduced me to San Filippo, sent me there on this trip with the patrons and led to this podcast. Wine access is awesome. And if you join the wine club, you'll get access to all of these wines that are like San Filippo, these hidden gems that you might not be able to find on your own because wine access is about giving you access to things that you can't get normally. And our wine club is part of that. The first shipment in January is $150. It is six bottles. You'll get a special letter from me explaining why I selected these wines. I have learned about so many great producers from them, and they also have taken my 
my advice on some producers. For instance, if you saw on Patreon or on social media, the Pascal Elaine Lorio Chinon from Serge de Ray Selections, shout out to Serge, was featured on Saturday as a special. So they have daily specials. You've got to get on Wine Access. If you love wine and you are in the U.S., go to wineaccess.com slash normal. Kind of hit the easy button. Get a shipment four times a year of these awesome wines. Our retention rate on the wine club is insane because all the wines that we have selected have been home runs. It's a foolproof way to get fantastic wines at a great price. Check it out today, wineaccess.com slash normal for that wine club. And you heard in episode 500, the patrons keep this podcast going for $21.60. If you join for the year, you can get access to the community and help keep us going. So if you listen to this podcast every week and you say that you're a huge fan, then you should think about joining Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wine for normal people. And we have a couple of wine classes up. I am renewing the schedule. We have one for January. We'll have another for January and February coming up, including a new class that I've never taught before. So go to winefornormalpeople.com slash classes. That's also where you can find the wine opener that I mentioned in episode 500. Let's get back to the show. Can we talk about Sangiovese? Because I love that I asked you this question and then you said immediately, well, I think that's kind of something not true. So Sangiovese, when you read in all of the wine education things, they say, well, it's the Brunello grape. They only use one clone of Sangiovese. It's Brunello. It's all exactly the same. And Sangiovese in Chianti, there's 20, 30 different types. But the line in all of the literature is there is one Brunello grape. Is that true? So this is a uh, yeah, very slippery field. <laughs> Let's do it. I will Tell try us. to I will try to to explain because yeah, the first thing you said is completely true. Most of the the wineries in Montalcino, let's say maybe all uh, are still communicating or saying Brunello Montalcino is Sangiovese Grosso. But so starting a little bit this uh, argument before I also saw it in internet that, for example, the Consorzio di Montalcino changed the rule saying that we Brunello Montalcino is 100% Sangiovese, not anymore Sangiovese Grosso. First, we, we have to a little bit understand what is a clone of a variety, I guess. People are listening, maybe don't know this exactly. So for each variety of vines, Sangiovese, Merlot, Cabernet, etc., cetera, et cetera, you can find a several type of clones. And each clones will have the same DNA, so because it's the same variety, but it can have some different observable characteristics, such as size of the grapes, size of the berries, uh, timing of ripening, timing of flowering, or timing of bud break resistance to certain disease more or less than other clones. So, of course, you can imagine that some clones are more interesting to others. And the clone exists because, of course, the vines of Sangiovese, with time, they have a certain adaptation to the, the terroir. And so they, they change a little bit, like normal things in, in nature. And all these clone things happen a little bit in the 60s, 70s, uh, when we started to do analysis on the DNA. Because before... You know, the only way to see if uh, two varieties were the same or the other was just looking at the leaves, looking at the, the grapes. This is a science called ampelography, uh, you know, they're describing how is the plant. And once we had uh, the proof that uh, the DNA was this for the same 
type of uh, Sangiovese in Montalcino, in Chianti. Eh? So we said it's all Sangiovese. Of course, we started to say, okay, they are all Sangiovese, but by different. So let's say that they are different clones. And at the beginning, in the 60s, 70s, they, they said that Montalcino, they saw that the berries were quite a little bit bigger, so they called Sangiovese Grosso. Uh, in um, in Montepulciano, it was Brugnolo Gentile. In, uh, in Chianti, you have other other names, Sangiovese Piccolo, for example. But, but at the end, what happened is that we, we started to study the clones. Uh, you know, to make a new vineyards now, we buy the little plants from the nursery, where the bottom part, the root system, is the American vines, and the top is the variety. And the top is uh, just a little piece of vine grafted on the root system. And this piece can come all from the same plant. We replicate the plants using the material, so we can plant a vineyard with 10,000 plants of the same clone. So, of course, once you know that, business become trying to find the best clone of Sangiovese all around Tuscany. Of course, the, the nursery started to propagate the best clones and started to sell the best clones. And now the, the clones that we find in the market of the nursery are, of course, the the best clones founded a little bit everywhere in, uh, in Tuscany. So some right. can be Chianti, can be Montalcino. And also, when we say Sangiovese Grosso, you know, means big berries. Nowadays, we know that to make quality reds, you don't need two big berries. Right. You need smaller berries because like this, the, the wind can dry the, the fruits better. Uh, you have more concentration because everything that is color and tennis is in the skins. So you can imagine that the direction of the selection of the clone was more the plants that produce smaller grapes and smaller berries. So uh, it's still true in certain wineries, for example, talking about Santi, they did uh, their own study of selecting their own clones on the, on the property. So they, they call it with another name and uh, not with San Grosso. So let's say it's that this thing that uh, we, we said it in San Giovese Grosso for all Montalcino probably was true in the past and nowadays it's less true there, but some purists will say I'm, I'm saying wrong but uh, it's my thinking it actually sounds like a purist should say that what you're saying is right because what you're saying is yeah. if you were really going to be accurate about it there are other clones besides Sangiovese Grosso that are actually being used. Are they the same clones that they're using in Chianti? Probably not only because the weather is so very different, right? I mean, yes. the difference yes. between Mandolcino, Montalpiciano, and Chianti are really, really strong in terms of weather. I mean, Montalcino is so much warmer. The Chianti Classico is actually quite cold in, in yes. many spots, and the altitude is much higher. And I think yes. people don't, now, Chianti has done a terrible job of explaining that. Montalcino has done a great job of explaining that. So for all the maybe little problems with the consorcio, one of the things that I think they've done a great job of is saying, look, Montalcino of the three is the warmest. So if you want a fuller, richer style of Sangiovese, this is where you go. As opposed to Chianti, where that is really a food wine. I mean, you really need to have Chianti Classico with food you can have San Filippo as a meditazione wine, right? It doesn't have to necessarily yeah. be with food. And it's why the, the pioneers of Brunello di Montalcino, they set the rules of 100% Sangiovese from the beginning because they found here in Montalcino the perfect terroir, so solids uh, and the weather to grow the Sangiovese and be able to make elegant wines with 100% uh, this variety. 
And Sangiovese, it's not an easy variety to work with because you need really to have uh, full ripe fruits at the harvest, especially in terms of tannins, because uh, it happened to everybody to drink a bad Sangiovese. It can drive your mouth after two seconds. So to be able to make pure Sangiovese wines with long aging, you need to find the, the good soils and the good weather to make those wines. We always say that the quality is, is in the vineyard. And if you don't have weather and soils, it's uh, you can do nothing. Let's talk about San Filippo, which is, where is it? We just talked about the different parts of Montalcino. So can you talk about the property, the organic farming, the estate, and maybe the small differences between, you mentioned that you have four different vineyards and that they have different microclimates and exposures. So can you discuss the differences in San Filippo? You make exquisite wines. I'd love to know, what are the factors that go into that from a terroir perspective? San Filippo is located on the east side of the hill, very close to Montalcino village. So of course, east side means uh, lower temperature, less daylight, and all those things bring the ripening a little bit slower. Sometimes, to give an example, we can have huge differences between the, the first day of harvest between the south. You know, sometimes it can be two weeks, wow. uh, so you can imagine the, the differences of climate. Yeah, like I said before, it's usually you, you have great elegance on the nose, maybe less intensity, less body, but more elegant style of the San Giovese, very fruity and floral, but still being able to, to have a nice structure for the aging of uh, the wine. San Filippo, we have 10 hectares. It represents 24 acres planted with, all with San Giovese. Uh, we have four different vineyards. And with the two main ones, we produce our two different Brunello di Montalcino. Uh, the San Filippo de Comurani, that is the historical block. We're still in the central part with some the vines from the 72 that make really classic style Brunello di Montalcino, uh, very truly and floral with very slightly spiciness. And uh, and then we have the second block for size, but maybe first for importance, is Le Luciere Vineyard, where we produce our Brunello di Montalcino Luciere and also in the best vintages, the Reserva di Luciere. In this vineyard, the, the, the origin of the soils uh, are sea deposits, so it's quite unique in, uh, in Montalcino. And it explains a little bit the, the more complexity that we always found in, uh, in the wines and in the grapes from this vineyard. It's a nice story of because it was planted in 96 from the previous owner, uh, maybe one of his last work on the property, and uh, it was a big gift. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Roberto, when he bought the winery so in 2003, you can imagine it was the very first harvest. And from the beginning, he told, he told me that just uh, tasting the grapes during harvest you could see spectacular quality and uh, more complexity compared to all the other vineyards we have. So Roberto decided immediately to to make a single vineyard, Brunello, so two single vineyards, uh, the San Filippo de Hobran in the Luceria, because it's nice to be able to to bottle uh, apart those two different styles. And also when we do the tasting, the people are always surprised that and between the two vineyards is like maybe three minutes walk, but the, the wines at the end in the glass are completely different. 
What's the differences in these two vineyards that make such a big difference in a three-minute walk? The huge difference is first the, the soil. Like I said, in Montalcino, it can change very quickly. And uh, the San Filippo de Comunale is a uh, clay soils with a lot of rocks of Pietraforte, so it's a Pietraforte formation of soil. And uh, yeah, as I said before, the Luchet is more a sea deposit. So it's already two different soils uh, by origin, two different eras where they were uh, made. And then uh, also the exposition work a little bit on the difference. San Filippo is facing north and uh, Le Lucere uh, is facing east. East is uh, a little bit different compared to a usual vineyard because usually a vineyard you want to have the slope to north or to south because like this you plant the rows north-south or south-north and you have the same exposition of the sun in the morning on the right side and the afternoon on the left side or uh, the other way. And in Nedushare Vineyard, uh, the opposite, we have uh, the direct sun early in the morning. So this is perfect, for example, during harvest time to dry the dew uh, of the morning. And then in the afternoon, you have less uh, direction of the sun and lower temperatures. So it, it helps us to always have much more elegance uh, into Nedushare wine. And, uh, you know, so it, it's a little bit sad to say that, but with climate change, uh, to be on uh, east orientation, north orientation, it, it helps a lot because we are having uh, always warmer summer and uh, Sangiovese suffer a lot uh, by the sunburns that dries the, the berries and uh, so have less exposure of the sun in the hottest uh, hours of the day. It's, uh, it's really helpful. I can imagine that many years ago, it was probably not at all advantageous to be in the north or the east. And now that is something that people are bragging about in Montalcino. At least that's what I've found. The other thing is, are people moving up to higher altitudes? Because you have a cap on how high you can go, but I wonder if the consortio will take that off at some point. It's already off. It is, okay, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, but the, the rule was that we couldn't plant a vineyard for Brunello or Rosso di Montalcino above 600 meters over the sea. And there was the rule, so there is a climate change effect. Because, of course, going in altitude, you have lower temperatures. And, of course, many lands are involved by the big wineries <laughs> and planted with Sangiovese vines. And another, to come back to the Lucere vineyard, this is also a nice example. The Lucere vineyard was planted in 1996 because probably before it was not a good exposition for a vineyard. Probably it was, I don't know, a tree field or forest. And uh, the, the previous owner decided maybe to plant there because he saw that uh, things were evolving in a warmer way. We can see also the alcohol level of the very first bottle of uh, San Filippo Brunello. We are like 13, 13 and a half. And nowadays it's more 14 and a half, 15. So it's, wow. uh, it changed a lot. Definitely. And so on the climate change, you said this year was a really difficult harvest for you. So is that part of it in your years at San Filippo? Are you seeing patterns of change? Or is it some winemakers I speak to say that it's just that it's unpredictable? You don't know when you're going to exactly. get water. You don't know. So the challenge is you can't predict anymore. It is hotter, but that's not necessarily the only problem or the main problem in some places. In some places, it's just as hot. It's just 
there's less water or there's more disease or the water's coming at a weird time. Or And I think we talk about climate change is probably a better phrase than global warming because Yes, yes, it is warmer, but it's all the weird stuff. That's kind uh, uh, of a uh, huge uh, problem. That's what I hear more out of the Tuscan winemakers, especially. No, no, for sure. It's a deregulation of the, of the climate. They're facing more often extraordinary events uh, like hailstorms or uh, uh, long amounts of uh, dryness. And of course, we will have to adapt. For example, I had a good professor at university told me that water it's it's never a problem you just have to because it, it rains in Montalcino we have good rains in Montalcino it's just that for farming you need the rain in specific timing so right. the only issue is to try to preserve the water to make lakes and then we will be able to continue to make wines that for sure then uh, of course it's getting more difficult and more challenging but uh, we'll have to face it and try to do our best to, to continue to make wine and I hope it will not be too too bad that we will have to stop making wine but uh, I'm sure at the moment we will still find good solution to, to face it. I think Tuscany is in a way better position than a lot of other places because Fair. it's always been warm. The grapes are well adapted to hot weather. It's just a question of whether or not people are willing to bend the rules a bit so that you can capture rainwater and use it when you need it. Yeah, exactly. At the moment, we can't water, but maybe in the future, we, we will. In Chateau Neuf de Pop, they didn't used to be able to do that, but now they have emergency declarations. In exactly. Years, you can apply for that. And I think that's probably the way all this is going. I mean, at least you have water. So if you can capture it and use it, why not, right? I do want to ask you about the winemaking. Right. What is your philosophy about winemaking and there's a lot of traditional versus modern and barrique versus the botti small oak versus big oak you're known for this very elegant style what do you use and how do you strike that balance because there are some producers of brunello and the style is just huge. It's just massive, massive wine. It doesn't have the nuance. Some of them are incredibly oaky. I've read before that probably Biondi Santi, maybe Bamfi, because they have so much money, they season their own oak outside. Is that a thing? I mean, how do people do this? I don't know if they're seasoning, but I will study it. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's, <laughs> it may be uh, it's one of those things a... that that everybody uses Sangiovese Grosso. Mm-hmm. It may be another yeah. one of these things, right? <laughs> the, the the lore is a lie. I think that uh, the you know we we are good making wine, and the barrel makers are good on making barrels, and yeah. everybody must be on his on his work. But to talk about the different type of uh, aging barrels, so in Montalcino, we can say that the tradition is the big cask, so the, the Botte Grande. A big volume of wine, but here in San Filippo, we, we use also a little bit of smaller barrels and also uh, many other producers in Montalcino. And uh, we, we have to stop to saying that uh, barrique means oaky wines and uh, big barrels means uh, fruity wines. It's, it's not necessary in this way. Sometimes you can find a small barrique that give you just elegance and uh, exalt uh, your nose, the fruitiness, uh, without adding any you know, vanilla and uh, heavy smells uh, that we, we always compare to, to the barrique. So it's just about be able to study the, the good amounts of each size to then help to have more complexity on the wine because we, we use the aging in, uh, in the oak barrels 
first, yeah, for the evolution of the tannins, because with the oak, you know, is porous, so you have microoxygenation that helps to make some reaction on the tannins and have uh, smoother wines, and uh, and the barrels also help to have a little extraction of the oak flavors and smells, and so to ha- add a little bit more complexity on the nose. But it's really working on the details here. In some people, we we found our good recipe that says using a little bit of small barrels for the first year of aging and then the rest of the time in in the big barrels. The difference is just that you, in a small barrel, you have a faster evolution because you have more contact, more surface oak compared to the small volume. But really buying the right barrels, finding the, the good producer that's really make barrels that can exalt your wine, then you, you can make amazing wines without losing the, the elegance that characterize the water. The Botti are Slavonian oak from Croatia, or are they French now? Um, are they everything? We, yeah, yeah. We, we can find both. Here in some people, we have a little mix of French and uh, Slavonian oak. French tend to be a little bit more sweet in terms mm-hmm. of tannins, and Slavonia is less... It's more so be more tight. Yeah, more neutral on the nose, but a little bit more tight sometimes, too dry. But, you know, it's like when you're cooking, you you have to find a perfect balance with acidity salt, and, and it's, uh, it's the same. And once again, we have to be open minds. You you don't have to, oh, I'm going to touch, you know, I want to do only a big bar because it's tradition. But we have to respect two years minimum in oak, and we are making elegant wines also using a little bit of barrique, you can do it. Do you pick a little bit earlier or is it just because of the location that your wines tend to be not over the top in terms of fruit? Picking decision I've found is such a really personal and important thing. It almost determines the whole course of the wine. Yes, exactly. You already have your site. You've picked it. You've taken care of the grapes the best that you can. And then at the end of it, and you farm organically also, right? Yes. So you've done it really well by the grapes, but that's got to be the time when you're losing a lot of sleep. When do you pick? Yes. The picking timing is uh, essential to make uh, good wine and elegant wine, especially with the Sangiovese, because like I said before, Sangiovese really needs the perfect ripeness of the tannins. And tannins, color, flavors are all on the skins of the berry. So the, the only way to measure this is to taste the grapes almost every day during uh, harvest time. We are tasting it and feeling, uh, chewing, you know, the skins, chewing the, the seeds to feel the tannin structure, how it works on your mouth at the beginning. It's uh, very dry and bitter, and uh, slowly become more like toasted notes of the almond, less dry, the, you lose the bitterness. It's like this, we determine the, the moment to pick. And luckily for us, the Sangiovese, it's a variety that maintains the acidity and the low pH with time. For example, I remember in Bordeaux, Merlot, you, you can't wait uh, oh, uh, a lot just, because, yes. Uh, yes, you lose immediately after two days, you lose the acidity and the uh, pH go too high. And then you have the wines that are uh, very heavy. Sangiovese is not easy in, uh, in the tannins way, but it's, it helps us a lot with the acidity and the also. So it's uh, it's very important. So for the Rosso, that we want it more fruity and ready sooner compared to the Brunello, we will usually pick a little bit earlier. Uh, for the Brunello, we have to build a big structure. I have to do longer extraction during fermentation. So we have to really pick at the right moment when the tannins 
are fully ripe, also the seeds. I want to ask you about the Rosso because so many people say Rosso is the little brother of Brunello. It's the baby Brunello. Do you look at it that way or do you look at it as a separate wine that you make? And where does your Rosso come from? Do you buy those grapes? Are they from young vines? How does that work? No, no, we, we have a vineyard dedicated to, to the Rosso. We don't buy grapes. We like to to make the wines only with our organic fruits. Uh, and yes, very, very important to us. And for the Rosso, yeah, it's just a different timing of harvest. Uh, let's say that for me, Rosso, it's, uh, it's another style of wine. I don't think that it's like uh, Brunello B or uh, it's uh, another style. Of course, already in Montalcino, we make all reds. And so it's nice to have both another interpretation of the Sangiovese. Rosso, you know, it goes in the market one year after the vintage. And for me, it has to have a style that's about good drinkability soon after the release. It's why I never do long maceration, usually we remove the wine from the skins straight after the fermentation to really have only the tannins of the skins and so very silky tannins. And then we age only uh, a year in big barrels uh, to don't have natural oakiness. For me, it's a wine, yeah, that you can enjoy very soon and also very versatile on pairing with uh, any kind of food, not necessarily big wine that you need to pair with more intense food. Oh, but it's like liquid velvet. So Lo Scorno is the wine, and it was in the Wine Access pack. For those of you who are part of the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club, it was one of the selections, and I know it was extremely popular because it is amazing. But the Brunellas are quite different. They're still that elegant, silky style, but it's clear that you are making different choices, which makes it interesting. So my last question to you is, what do you see for the future? What about for Montalcino, for San Filippo? Are you going to add San Antimo Whites? Are you going to... No. Hey, look, they just allowed that, right? I mean, that's fairly new that you could make a white if you wanted to. No, in in, uh, in San Filippo, yeah, we have new news, some news. We, we're going to plant a new vineyard uh, this spring because we had a olive trees uh, field that we removed uh, the plants and uh, replanted just inside the property but now we're using this field to plant a new vineyard and uh, it's another pile of soil so we will see in a few years how the, the grapes are coming and then yes I like I said before in, in Montalcino there is a lot of uh, unexplored fields to, to discover to improve also the quality of the wines, maintaining the elegance, then of course all the climate change <laughs> things that will change the card on the on the table again. So we'll see, and it's exciting. I'm sure, we in some people we're gonna continue to put all our effort to maintain the the elegance of uh, that characterized our wines. Then uh, I hope. Uh, uh, people who continue to enjoy San Filippo wine at their oh table. Oh my gosh, they absolutely will. But I mean, you're only 30 years old. I cannot imagine what you're going to do if this is what you're doing now with these wines, because not only are you getting all the scores and the accolades and all that kind of, we talked about this before we started recording, mm-hmm. who really cares about that? All you have to do is put the wine in your mouth and you will know that this is heavenly wine. When our group came and visited you, we were just bowled over. It really is this unbelievable style with a nod to tradition, but also still modern. You are so talented, Tomab. It's amazing. I can't wait 
to follow your career. You have done amazing things and your passion and understanding of the land. You really have some very, very big tie to the earth and to the land. It is so great for me, having been in this business almost as long as you've been alive, I've been in this business for 20 (laughs) years. For me to look at this and see someone like you at the beginning of your career being so on point, you're more sophisticated, understand more than a lot of winemakers that are double your age. So I'm so glad that we had a chance to spend this time together. Keep doing what you're doing. And you're listening to this Go visit San Filippo and go see Toma if you can, because this property, you could feel it, how special it is when you go there. There's just something about it. But the only thing I will say is that when we were backing out of the bus, your dog would not move. And I was really worried it was going to get hit. So just please train your dogs a little bit better. That's all I can say. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time time.